Good morning, church. My name is Phil Shields, and I serve as one of the pastors here at Wheaton Bible Church. I have just a few announcements for you before we get started. If you're new to Wheaton Bible Church, we'd love to connect with you. Feel free to scan the QR code on the seat back in front of you, and from there, you can learn more about who we are, what we believe, and groups that are available to join. Be sure to stop by Connect Central in the atrium after the service so we can get to know you and get you plugged in. If you'd like to stay up to date on all that's going on here at Wheaton Bible Church, sign up for our weekly email newsletter, which goes out every Wednesday evening. From our homepage, you can scroll down and tap subscribe. Here, you can select whether you'd like to receive our weekly newsletter, devotional, or both. Our devotionals are sent right to your inbox every weekday. These are short readings and meditations written by people right here at Wheaton Bible Church. Listen up, parents. I've got two important announcements for you. First, as a reminder, if you have a child between kindergarten and fourth grade, make sure you check out our Kids Club here on Wednesday nights from 6.30 to 8 p.m. This is a great time where kids play games, build friendships, dig into God's Word, and work on memorizing Bible verses. There's no cost to participate, and kids may join at any time. This semester, our kids are focusing on learning about the fruit of the Spirit. Speak to someone in kids' life and check out wheatonbible.org slash kidsclub. Lastly, on Friday evening, March 10th, and Saturday morning, March 11th, we are hosting a parenting seminar here on campus. Come join us for a great conversation with our pastors and staff. We will be talking about how to shepherd our kids' and students' hearts in the cultural context of our world today. More information, including costs and registration, will be announced soon. Stay tuned. Thanks for worshiping with us today. Hope you have a great week. Good morning. Thanks to Tony and Grace and Steve for preparing our hearts to worship. This morning, the choir will call us to worship and launch us into a time of praise. And then, as always, we'll have a time of confession and assurance of salvation. As this, uh, obviously, and then we'll hear from God's word. As the psalmist says, may our hearts echo, great is the Lord and most worthy of praise.
let's take a few moments to confess our sin quietly before the Lord, and then we'll pray corporately. confession together. Most merciful God, we confess that we are in bondage to sin and cannot free ourselves. We have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us. Forgive us, renew us, and lead us so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways. To the glory of your holy name. Amen. 1 John 1, 9-10 assures us of our salvation. Let's read together. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness.
blessing to worship to God as a family together. In a moment, we want to say hello to one another, which is one of the reasons we're inviting everyone to join us here on the main floor. We have this great big room, but we want, um, we want everyone to know that their physical presence matters. And we want to do this together as a family, as we can always have our devos at home alone. But this is a special gathering, right? Yes, it is. So today we invite you to find someone you don't know and, in, and share your name and maybe how long you've been going to this church. All right, meet each other. If you don't mind, you can take a seat. This is, this is actually beautiful, beautiful. I think that when Katie uh, was planning this moment, she did not think that this was going to last 10 minutes. What a beautiful thing that we get to greet one another. Welcome all to Wheaton Bible Church, and as we continue in an attitude of worship, I'm going to ask, please, the ushers to come to the front uh, for us to get ready to collect the offering, and I don't know if you knew this, but part of the reason why, as a church, every week, we take the time to worship the Lord with our giving and our offerings and our tithes is because we believe that giving is one of the means of sanctification. Is one of the ways in how we learn to die to ourselves and to trust our God more and more, even with our money. So if you're visiting for the first time, please do not feel obligated to participate in this. This is for those of us that this is our church. Um, I'm going to ask you to please pass, uh, pass the plates. And as we pass the plates, also to remind you that there's different ways to give here in the church. You could always give your offering as we pass the plates. You could give your offering. Um, online, or if you are worshiping with us from a different uh, part, or if you're worshiping with us at home, you could always um, send your offerings to the, uh, uh, to the offices of the church. Amen? So as a church, we get to celebrate that we are the church of Jesus Christ. And as a church, we also get to celebrate what the Lord has done throughout our history. And there is a reason why our nation during the month of February celebrates Black History Month. And our nation celebrates Black History Month not just because, uh, not just because. Actually, I want to make the argument that part of the reason why even the secular world celebrates Black History Month is because Christianity has influenced the way we view one another. 
See, as believers, we believe that all human beings are created in the image of God. So therefore, we seek to honor and give dignity to those who have been created in the image of God. People from different nations and languages and ethnicities. And that's why as a church, one of our traditions is to take the time to celebrate and honor Black History Month. Because our brothers and sisters, our black brothers and sisters are created in the image of God. They do have value and dignity, and they are part of our church, the church of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. So we want to do today, or what I want to do today, I want to share with you five people. Five people that you should know or hear about. Today we remember and honor a saint like the historian Carter uh, Woodson, who started the celebration of Black History Week, before it was Black History Month, to, co to, um, to coincide with the birthday of Abraham Lincoln, the author of the Emancipation Proclamation. Today, as Christians and as a church, we remember and honor someone like Lot Carey, born into slavery, learned to read the Bible, and eventually purchased his freedom from enslaving. Slaven, enslavement, Lot led the first Baptist missionaries into Africa. We remember and honor someone like Sojourner Truth. She escaped in slavery and became a strong voice for the abolitionist movement, led by her relationship with Jesus. Truth was best known for her role in the human and the women's rights of movement. We remember and honor Harriet Tubman. Although Harriet Tubman escaped slavery in 1849, she was not satisfied with just her own freedom. Tubman said that the voice of God helped her lead as many as 300 slaves into freedom using the Underground Railroad. Today, as a church, we remember and honor George, George Washington Carver, an example of perseverance. Despite the racism he encountered while pursuing higher education, Carver never gave up and eventually became the first African-American to earn a Bachelor's of Science degree. And all that because of the mercy of God and for the glory of God. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, today we recognize that your word says that all nations and ethnic groups have their own splendor and beauty. And that's why we celebrate the multicolored nature of your kingdom. We are grateful, Lord, that we get to be part of a kingdom in which the blood of Jesus has broken the dividing wall that kept us apart. And now people from every tribe and language and nation not only have been adopted into one family, but now in the freedom of the gospel, we get to see our differences and appreciate them. Lord, we are grateful that our, for our black uh, brothers and sisters. And today we ask, Lord, for your grace for help, uh, to help us become what we already are in Jesus Christ. We ask for our community, we ask for our nation, we ask for our world. That we get to see the beauty of the multicolored kingdom of God. And now, Lord, as we get ready to open up the scriptures, we pray, Lord, that your spirit may illuminate our minds, transform our affections, and influence our wills. So that at the end of the day, the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts may be pleasing to you. And we pray for all of this in the name of Jesus and the church says.
Good morning, church. I want to encourage you to take out your notebooks uh, that you have and turn to page 82. We're going to read the text together, and so I want to invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. We stand in reverence because we believe that this is the Word of the Lord and it is living and active in our lives. So Matthew 15, starting in verse 21, it says this. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away for she keeps crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. He replied, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said to her, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. Jesus left there and went along the Sea of Galilee. Then he went up on a mountainside and sat down. Great crowds came to him, bringing the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and laid them at his feet. And he healed them. The people were amazed when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled made well, the lame walking, and the blind seeing. And they praised the God of Israel. Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. I do not want to send them away hungry or they may collapse on the way. His disciples answered, where could we get enough bread in this remote place to feed such a crowd? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied, and a few small fish. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. Then he took the seven loaves and the fish, and when he had given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples, and they in turn to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was 4,000 men besides women and children. After Jesus had sent the crowd away, he got into the boat and went to the vicinity of Magadan. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. How's everyone doing? For those of you that are visiting for the first time, my name is Hannibal, and we are so glad that you are here. Um, and just in case you didn't know this, part of the reason why we exist as a church is so we together learn how to love God, love one another, love our neighbors, and love the nations. And one of the ways in how we grow into that is by walking together through books of the Bible. So that's the reason why for the last year, and uh, almost and a half actually, no, 
about a year or so, we have been doing, walking through this journey in the Gospel of Matthew. And today, the section in which we're meditating, which is the section we just read, uh, I'm going to try to answer one question. What does it mean to have great faith? What does it mean to have great faith? And right from the beginning, um, I think it's important to understand that great faith does not mean perfect faith. Nobody has perfect faith. Great faith does not mean either flawless faith, meaning that you never doubt because doubting is part of our humanity. Great faith does not mean sinless faith, meaning that if you have great faith, you're not going to sin or struggle. What the Bible is going to show about great faith is that even though it's a faith that is not perfect and is not flawless and is not, sin- and is not sinless, Yet there is a type of faith that is worthy of admiration and imitation. And that if you are a believer, that's something that you and I should desire. To be people of just great faith. Not just faith, great faith. So these are my two points for today. We're going to talk about great faith and a great Savior. Now, please don't be deceived. Two points doesn't mean that I'm going to go short. Let's go with point number one, great faith. In the context of the text, uh, we see Jesus finishing having this conversation with the religious leaders. If you were here last week, you may remember that. Um, And this is a group of people that have it all together, that they think that they have it all together, that they think that they don't need help, that they think that they're morally superior to everybody else, and Jesus is confronting them. And what is interesting, though, that is after he confronts them, there is no response from them at all. So, for example, there is no evidence of repentance. There is no evidence of brokenness. There is no evidence of them having responded in faith at all. That's how the last section we did last week finishes in verse 20. Jesus confronts them, talks to them about the reality of their heart, and that's how it ends. Now, the text tells us that Jesus walks away and he goes to a different place. And he starts to interact with a woman. And I want you to pause there for a second because I think that Matthew is intentional about putting these things together because in one end, these two narratives together, because in one end, we see a bad example of what it means to be a quote-unquote a believer. We're about to see a really good example of someone that has great faith. In one end, we're going to see, we saw last week, an example of what it means to be a religious person. And here today, we're going to see a great example of what it means to be a person that is a believer of great faith, desperate for Jesus. Now, to help you understand why Matthew is doing this thing, I think it's important for us to hear how these religious leaders, actually how these men in general, saw themselves. And we know how they saw themselves, by the way, by this little prayer that many of them did, many of them did every morning before the Lord. This is what they would say. Thank you, God, that I'm not a Gentile, a woman, or a slave. That's a crazy prayer. 
This is how these people view themselves. Every morning in their devotional time, they say to God, thank you that I'm not a Gentile. By the way, you are a Gentile, just so you know. A woman and a slave. And I want you to keep that prayer in mind. Because this text is extremely ironic. Because Jesus is just finishing confronting these religious leaders that view themselves that way. And he's about to show them an example of great faith with someone that, does, that is part of their prayer. So look at what it says in verse 21. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Now, the reason why that's important is because these two cities are Gentile cities. This is the people that these men prayed against. Jesus is moving into a region that these people don't like. And what he makes it significant is that most of, the, of Jesus' ministry, I would say 95% of Jesus' ministry, was done within the Jewish territory. Did you know that Jesus did very little ministry to the Gentile world? But that's why I find it so ironic and interesting that Jesus is moving out of this Jewish world to, into a Gentile world, maybe just maybe, because he wants to show these religious people what, real great, what great faith looks like. So look at the narrative here in verse 22. A Canaanite woman from the vicinity came to him, crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and, su and suffering terribly. So here you have a Gentile woman desperately crying out to Jesus. And we know that she's desperately crying out to Jesus because the word crying out is in the imperfect tense. Means that she is doing it over and over and over and over. She is so desperate that she will not leave Jesus alone. And somehow this Gentile woman knows Jesus much more than the religious leaders that are supposed to know Jesus. So, for example, she knows that Jesus is the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. And that he's got authority. And this is part of the reason why she calls him Lord. And the part of the reason why she calls him Son of David. Here we have, and I'm going to say it again, a Gentile woman approaching Jesus in an entirely, entirely different way to the way the religious leaders did. There's something she knows about Jesus that these men cannot see. Why is she so desperate? Why is it that she's not walking away from Jesus? Why is she repeating the same thing over and over again? Well, the text tells you that part of the reason why she's doing this is because her daughter, which um, scholars believe that this was not a little one because of the way the, word, the, the, the expression is in the text, but this was probably like a teenager or young adult daughter that, has, that is demon-possessed and is suffering Terribly. Now, if you are a parent, you know what that feels like. Amen? When your child is suffering, you know what that feels like, right? So it makes sense that this woman is going after Jesus so he could heal and give freedom to her demon-possessed daughter. She's so desperate 
that she's breaking all cultural barriers, you know? I'll give you three things that she's doing. She is a Gentile approaching a Jew. That would never happen. Number two, she is a woman approaching a man. That would never happen. And she's a Gentile woman approaching a religious leader that would never, ever, 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 ever happen. But I don't want you to miss her attitude. Don't miss her attitude. She says to Jesus, Lord, son of David, please have mercy on me. We're going to talk a little bit more about that later on. But if you have been walking with us through the Gospel of Matthew, or if you know anything about the Gospels, you know that Jesus has this tendency to be quick to help people. I mean, if you know anything about the Gospels and the life of Jesus, you know that Jesus has this tendency to turn around and help people on the spot. He never waits. Actually, he does quicker than what people expect, and he does more than what people expect. And part of the reason why I'm saying that is because as we walk through this text, you're going to see how Jesus responds, which nobody would expect Jesus to respond to a person in need the way he did. Verse 23, Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged them, send her away for she keeps crying out after us. How many of you guys find that weird? Only five of you? How many of you guys don't care? That's, that's weird. It's a weird behavior from Jesus. And by the way, it's a weird behavior from the disciples. You know, Jesus has never done that. And the disciples know that he has never done that. So why is it that Jesus did not respond? And why in the world these men are, these, these pillars of Christianity are saying to Jesus, how about if you get rid of her? She's so annoying. Don't you find that weird? You know, I don't, find, I don't find that so weird. Because sometimes in my heart I do exactly the same. And something tells me that sometimes in your heart you do exactly the same. Why is Jesus not responding? Why are the disciples doing this thing? Why is it that the disciples don't have mercy enough for a mother crying out for her daughter? You would think that in this narrative, Jesus is having this conversation with the disciples. He's looking at this woman weeping. He knows that, that, that uh, her daughter is demon-possessed. And you would say, well, now Jesus is going is to perform the miracle. He's done it before. But that's not what he does. Verse 24, he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. What? Only? I want you to keep that in mind. Keep the prayer in mind. Keep the word only in mind. Now, this lady is so desperate. She wants the healing of her daughter so and so much that she does not give up in verse 25. The woman came and knelt before the Lord and she cried out, Lord, 
help me. Three times. Lord, three times. Why is it that this lady is not giving up? What is it that she knows about Jesus? How desperate is she? See, when you look at texts like this, you really have to try to understand the magnitude of her desperation. And if you don't know what that is, I'm going to help you with that. See, a few years ago, I was a friend of mine, a, a professor at Winton College. He was giving a lecture on the immigration issues that we, that we have had with, with uh, Central America, the amount of people that have come from Central America to the United States. He's kind of an expert in that field. And he was talking about this research project that interviewed a ton of people fleeing from Central America to the United States. Um, and part of his research, uh, he interviewed a few women that were talking about this. And one of the ladies told them this. By the way, many of these women and families leave their kids behind with some relatives so they could come to the United States, right? And then send money back or do things like that, right? Or prepare the way many times. So in his interview with this lady, this lady says this. Well, before we leave Central America, many of us take birth control pills. Why? Because they know what could happen. And I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, how desperate you have to be. How desperate you have to be to leave your kids behind. How desperate you have to be to know that something awful might happen to you. And you still do it. That's desperation. That's despair. And that's exactly what this woman is feeling. This is how desperate this woman is feeling. This is how we know that she's crying out to God. Why, Lord? Not actually, Lord, help me. And you would think, well, now, finally, Jesus is going to help her. But that is not what happens in the text. Look at what he says in verse 26. Jesus replied, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Now, listen, if that text doesn't bother you, man, you're not reading your Bible right. What happened to Jesus? What happened to the love of Jesus, the compassion of Jesus, the patience of Jesus? What happened to the man that has forgiven sin and recent people from the dead? What happened with the, with, the, with the guy that multiplied the bread? Well, this is interesting. The secular world takes this text and many like this and say, you see, that's why Jesus is not trustworthy. I think that Jesus is some kind of a, of a racist kind of guy. Can't you see how he does not appreciate women? 
You know, that's the problem when, we t when people take one text and determine the whole theology of the Bible based on one text. Actually, I would say that many of us as Christians do the same thing. We grab one verse, the verse that we really love, and we apply it however we want without looking into the context of the text. You know what's interesting about this text? Everyone gets offended by that. Except one person. The lady in this story. Don't you find that weird? We could be offended. She didn't get offended. You know how I know that? Look at verse 27. Yes, it is, Lord. You are right. Even the dogs, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Once again, she calls them Lord. She says, it is wrong to take the food from your children and give it to the dogs. But don't forget that even the dogs eat the crumbs from the table. So you got to ask the Bible the question. What is it that she knows that we need to know? What is it that she believes that we need to believe? Why is it that she is not offended? Actually, if you notice, why is it that Jesus does not correct her? Notice Jesus doesn't go to her and says, how dare you speak back to me? Maybe, just maybe, this lady has a better faith than any of us do. Maybe, just maybe, this lady has better theology than the religious leaders of the time. Maybe, just maybe, this lady has better theology than the disciples at that moment had. So I'm going to show you four things from the text that this lady believes that makes her faith great. Ready? You got to say ready. ready. Number one, she knows Jesus' heart. You remember how she approached him at the beginning? She called him a God of mercy. She knows in the midst of her des desperation, in the midst of this uh, changing conversation thing, in the midst of all of that stuff, she knows that God is a God of mercy. She is not divorcing this conversation from the heart of Jesus. She is not, because she's having this conversation, she's not divorcing from what she already knows about Jesus and I'm going to come back to this later on. But she knows that she does not deserve anything from Jesus. This is part of the reason why she's not offended. She's not divorcing what Jesus is doing here to what he already is here. She knows his heart. Number two. She knows Jesus' plans. You know how I know that? In verse 24, Jesus says, I was sent only... To the lost sheep of Israel. And in verse 26 he says. It is not right to take the children's bread. And toss it to the dogs. So this is what this lady knows. It's brilliant. A gentle woman. Brilliant. She knows this. She knows that in the economy of God. In the plan of salvation. 
in the restoration story, in the redemption story, there was a pattern and a plan that right from the beginning, when we see it in Genesis chapter 12, God says that he was going to bless the Israelites first so they could be a blessing to the nation. She knows somehow that in God's plans, he will start with the Israelites and then he will move into the Gentile world. That's what we see later on in the book of Acts. That's what we see with Peter and Paul. How does this lady know this? Have no idea. But she does. You know what she's doing here? Which I find super interesting. She's saying to Jesus, I know what the plan is. I know that, we, that you came to bring blessing to the nations. I just want it now. I want to be included already. I want to be part of that right now. That's where she's not offended. That's where her theology is brilliant. Not only she knows Jesus' heart, Jesus' heart, but she also knows Jesus' plans. Number three, she knows Jesus' words. See, we read this text, and especially in this part of the world, when we worship dogs. Yeah, we do. We look at the word dog and we say, oh, or ew. Those are the two options. What is interesting, though, is that when someone calls you a dog, it doesn't matter if they say it really nicely, it's still offensive. Right? It's like, it's like when someone says to you, uh, you are useless. <laughs> I mean, that's hard. Even if they say it nice, it still hurts. Ah, uh, you are so useless. It don't matter, still hurts. Well, I, in this context and in this time, there was two different ways to use the word dog. It'll be the Jew way in which they will call dogs all the Gentiles. You know what that's called? Prejudice and racism. We don't use those, people use other words. And the second definition will be to describe um, a regular dog that lives at home. Once again, it doesn't matter how you use it, that's still offensive. What I find that interesting though is that I don't believe that Jesus is using any of those two ways. And I actually believe that this lady does not believe that Jesus is using the term dog in any of these two ways. This is why this lady is brilliant. She can sense that Jesus is using the word dog as a, or this metaphor of eating children and the dog and all these things as a, par, as a parable or a metaphor or an, or an illustration. Jesus is not calling her a dog. He is giving an example and this lady gets it. The disciples didn't get it. And for sure the religious people don't get it. But this Canaanite woman, Gentile woman, gets what Jesus is saying. So this lady somehow knows Jesus' heart, Jesus' plans, Jesus' words. 
And this is what she knows the most. That she does not deserve anything from God. That's why she says, Jesus have mercy on me. Can you compare and contrast? Can you see the attitude of the religious leaders and how they approach Jesus? Can you see the attitude of the disciples and how they approach this lady? And here we have a Gentile woman that is teaching all these men what it means to know that she does not deserve anything. No sense of entitlement. No sense of you have to help me. No saying I deserve this. No sense of saying this is not fair. I have been good. No saying I have been a great mom. No. Lord, please have mercy on me. Give me what I don't deserve. Her theology much better than the religious people's theology. She knows Jesus' heart. He knows Jesus' plans. She knows Jesus' words. And she knows that Jesus is a God of mercy and that she does not deserve anything from him. This is the way Tim Keller puts it. She is not coming to him on the basis of her goodness, but on the basis of his goodness. And after all of this, the greatest words Jesus pronounced in verse 28. Woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted and her daughter was healed at that moment on the spot. You remember the prayer? Thank God that I'm not a Gentile and a woman and Jesus says, look at, this, look at this gentle and woman that is a great example of what it means to be a person of great faith. So there's a couple of things that I got to ask you, though. Is that how you view God? Are you that desperate for God? Because I actually think in my own personal relationship with the Lord and the way uh, as I have been a pastor for a while now is that part of our struggle with our faith is precisely because we have issues with these four things that this lady has. That we struggle with our faith and we don't increase in our faith and we don't live by faith many times is because we struggle with the very four things this lady knows. So we're going to do a little bit of a self-assessment. Not because I want you to feel guilty, but because I want you to feel guilty for a second. Just for a second. Let's talk about the, the heart of Jesus. See, one thing that we learn from this Jesus, from this lady about Jesus, is that she does not have a fragmented Jesus. You know what I mean? That she doesn't take parts of what Jesus is and leaves other parts out. 
And I want to make the argument that when you and I struggle with our faith, it's because we do that. We do that. We think that Jesus is one thing here and a different Jesus here. This is part of the reason why sometimes, for example, we struggle with the love of God and the holiness of God. Many of us, we love the love of God, but not the holiness of God in the sense that he wants you to be righteous and die to your sin. And part of the reason why we struggle with this is because we are separating the love of God from the holiness of God. And I'm here to argue that it is because God is holy that he wants you to be righteous. Why would he want you to live in a such a way that you hurt yourself and you hurt others? We don't get to separate those two. It's one package. We have the same issue with doctrine. We love some doctrines of God and some other doctrines. No, not so much. You don't get to do that because our Jesus is not fragmented. We do the same thing with suffering. Why, if God is good, allow suffering in my life? And I would say, why not? It is because God is good that he brings and allows suffering. So at the end of the day, you learn that everything is for his glory and you're good. See, we struggle with our faith when we struggle with the heart of Jesus. We could also struggle with our faith when we struggle with Jesus' plans. This is one thing that this lady understands. I want to argue that you struggle with your faith and I struggle with my faith when my plans are not in alignment with God's plans. Or when God's plan, God's timing does not match my timing. Listen to the words of John Newton. It says, all shall, work, all shall work together for good. Everything is needful that he sends. Nothing can be needful if he withholds. You know what that means? That if you're praying for something and the Lord gives it to you, that's because you need it. But if he doesn't give it to you, it's because you did not need it. And we go to God and say, I don't agree with that. That's not the point. Number three, I think that sometimes we struggle with our faith when we really don't know Jesus' words. One thing that I have been repeating, and we have been repeating forever in this church, is that the most secular the world becomes, the more you got to know your Bible. Amen. How else are we going to know what is true and what is not? You know, St. Augustine is known, uh, he's known for saying this phrase, which I, which I really appreciate the phrase. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. And people, churches say that and say, you see, we should all be together. And, and I'm like, amen. The problem is this. That if you don't know God's words, how do you know what's essential? See, the religious leaders, the religious people, everything is essential. My politics is essential. My lifestyle is essential. The things I like is essential. And Jesus says, no, not everything is essential. But the progressives would say, nothing matters. Nothing is essential. How are we to know what is true and not if we don't know God's words? It is when we don't know God's words that we struggle with our faith. What about the mercy of Jesus? And on this, I'm going to be slow. 
many of our struggles in faith is because we think deep down inside that we do deserve who we are and what we have. And the most humble thing you could do is to recognize that you and I don't deserve anything from God. And that everything we are and everything we have is because of the grace of God. Isn't that the reason why there's prejudice and racism? Because some people feel superior to others. Isn't that the reason why sometimes we struggle being merciful? Because we feel that there's people that deserve mercy and other people that don't deserve it. Isn't that the reason why we are so, it takes us so long to forgive? Because we believe that some people deserve forgiveness and other people don't. Isn't that the reason why we struggle with repentance? Because sometimes we don't think that we are as bad as we think we are. Isn't that the reason why we struggle with pride? Everything you are, everything you have, your work, your talents, your family, anything and everything you have, none of that stuff is because you deserve it. Everything you are and you have is because of the grace of God. No reason why anybody should boast about anything at all. This lady teaches that the way to approach Jesus is Jesus have mercy on me. Question. Can we change? Of course we can. This lady is an example of that. How do we change? Well, to get a great faith, we need, number two, a great Savior. And I'm going to give you these three verses in a row so you can see them. In verse 22, he says <clears throat> that the Can Canaanite woman was crying out to the Lord saying, Lord, have mercy on me. And then if you keep reading the text in the second part of Matthew 15, we see in verse 30, Jesus performing this miracle again. And he says, great crowds came to him, bringing the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and laid them at his, as he, at, at his feet, and he healed the dumb. Now look at verse 32. I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. I do. I do not want them to send them away hungry. And the reason why I put these verses together is because I want you to see mercy is how the text starts and compassion is how the, the text ends. These are the book ends of the text. And even though mercy and compassion are similar, there is a difference. Mercy is Jesus' attitude Toward the broken or the one in need. It's his attitude. His compassion is that he's affected by, at a personal level by what he sees. And that he's willing to be moved to fix that problem. One of the scholars puts it, it is to be moved by love and affections. And it explains then, how is it that we become people of great faith? When we see something 
that this lady didn't even know she was going to have. But that we do know. See, if you ever question the mercy and the compassion of God, the only thing you have to do is look at the cross. Can't you see there that God is trustworthy? Can't you see there how much God cares for you? Can't you see there that his heart is trusted? That you could trust his heart. He went to the cross for you. Can you see that his plans, plans can be trusted? He said that he was going to die for you. He said that he was going to resurrect. And he did. Why wouldn't you trust his plans? See, at the cross you can see. That he is truly a God of compassion. See, at the cross you could see. That he is willing to give you what you don't deserve. Because he took what we all deserve. How do we become people of great faith? When we know and understand what Jesus, who Jesus is and what Jesus did at the cross more and more. And this is the crazy thing. That he's not even giving us the crumbs that fall under the table. He calls us to sit with him and his table, or with him in, our, in his table. That's how you move from faith to great faith. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Beautiful Savior, we are grateful that we do have examples of great faith in the Bible. That we have great examples of people that have committed, that they believe in you with, in such a way, with such a magnitude, with such an intensity, Lord, that they trust, Lord, your heart, your plans, your words, and your mercy. I pray, Lord, in the name of Jesus, that you make of us people that believe just that. We pray, Lord, in the name of Jesus, that you help us grow in our faith. We already believe. We just want to believe more. We already have placed our faith in you. We just want to die to ourselves more. Lord, the Bible makes it clear that no one has perfect faith. That we all have imperfect faith. But Lord, you always welcome people with imperfect faith. Please make us like the Canaanite woman. That she fully trusted you in the midst of everything. We pray for all of this in the name of Jesus. And we all say. This next hymn is a prayer, is a plea for God's mercy and compassion. And just as the women asked, don't pass me by, that's exactly what we say today. We echo her words, don't pass us by. Let's stand.
take a seat. One of the definitions for the word mercy and compassion is something like this, that the heart of Jesus goes out to you. That there's something about Jesus' heart that the most he sees his people struggling, the more his heart goes out to them. I think that if you're a parent, you understand that, you know? If you're a good parent, you love all your kids the same. But when one of your kids is struggling, your heart goes out the most to that child. You know, and when you look at the Gospels and you look at the life of Jesus Christ and his mercy and compassion, you would see that his heart went out, went out to the disadvantaged by family circumstances, for example. He had mercy and compassion on the widows and the orphans. His heart went out for the one that had been disadvantaged by geography, like the strangers. His heart went out for the disadvantaged by occupation or social choices, like sinners and prostitutes and tax collectors. His heart went out to the disadvantaged by physical disabilities, like the blind and the lame. His heart went out by the disadvantaged by diseases, like the leopards. His heart went out for the disadvantaged by their own age, like children. His heart went out for the disadvantaged because of their gender, like women. His heart went out for the disadvantaged because of their religion and ethnicity, like the Samaritans. You know why that's important for us to know? Because he tells you that there's no one that is outside the mercy and compassion of Jesus. So regardless of the magnitude of your sin, and regardless of what you have done, and regardless of what you have gone through, if you are the sinner or the prostitute or the tax collector, or if you are the widow and the orphan and the stranger or the leper or the children or the child or the woman or the Samaritan, the grace of God is for you. The mercy of God is for you. If that's the reality of who you are already, if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ already, this celebration is for you. It's a celebration of the mercy of God. It's a celebration that reminds us that we were like the Canaanite woman asking to our Lord, Lord, have mercy on us, and that Jesus already responded. I already had mercy on you. I went to the cross to die for you. If you're not there yet, might not be a good idea that you participate in this just yet. Submit your life to him. Repent and then you can participate. Amen? I do want us to take a few minutes, a few seconds, for us to see what our heart is. For us to bring before the Lord anything that we need to repent of. For us to remember that we truly don't deserve anything and yet we have it all in Jesus Christ. Let's take a few seconds. This is between you and the Lord.
going to ask you to please take your cup and remove the cover from the side of the cup that has the bread. And this is what the scripture says. For I received from the Lord what I also passed unto you. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. You may participate. You may remove the other side of the cup, but you find the juice. And this is what scripture says. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You may participate. My beautiful Savior, there's no reason why would any of us would doubt that you are a God of mercy and a God of compassion. Lord, we just remembered and celebrated that. So my prayer, Lord, that is, is that just as these elements are entered into our system, may the good news of your mercy and compassion Enter into our souls and stay there. And we pray for all of this in the name of Jesus, and we all say. Let's stand together and rejoice in what Jesus has done for us. Thank you, sir.
One of the beautiful things about the gospel is that it tells you that what the Lord started, he's going to finish. That principle also applies to the mercy and the compassion of God. And he tells you that at the cross, he already exercised mercy and compassion toward you. And he will continue to exercise that until he takes you home. Until we receive our crowns. Until we will no longer have to deal with our, with our doubts. That's a beautiful picture. And that's precisely why we need to hear this blessing before we finish our service. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine in us so that his ways may be known on earth and his salvation among all the nations. And the church says, Amen. thanks for coming. We love you. Church, you are sent.